Well, good morning. I am continuously amazed at the goodness and, make sure I'm on, yes, the goodness and graciousness of our God um, in providing for His people. And uh, this very morning, He has provided for me, even in that song that was a change in the order of service. Um, a great confirmation in my heart, uh, as we could not have planned that any better for the word that uh, will be brought this morning. So, praise the Lord for his kindness to us. Um, I greet you in the name of the Lord. Um, I do know several of you in the room. Um, I bring you greetings from Redeeming Grace Church of Cody. And um, I have, I've had the opportunity to meet a few of you. Of course, I know Nate and Bobby, um, Jake, we actually had lunch uh, last time that we were here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Tate, I have met. Uh, of course, I know your pastor, uh, Paul, and, and his lovely family. And um, for those of you who do not know, uh, I want to echo something I said the last time I was here. Uh, Redeeming, Grace of Church, Redeeming Grace Church of Cody loves you very much. Uh, we are um, very indebted for your prayers and uh, we pray for you often. Um, we pray that the Lord will strengthen and grow you. Uh, we pray that he will do this in at least two ways. Um, the, the first way that we pray would be to uh, continue to grow you in godliness. Uh, as Paul commands Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, 4, 7, and 8, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness... While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Secondly, we pray for the expansion of God's kingdom through men and women and boys and girls being born again uh, through the work here in Warland. Acts 1.8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I also pray that the Lord will strengthen um, our bond as joint heirs uh, together and as sister churches here in Wyoming. And so I will ask you to bear with me a little bit today as we uh, move on into the Word. Uh, we are just, have just returned from a whirlwind trip to the Midwest and back. And actually, we got in uh, late afternoon yesterday, uh, a day later than anticipated. We had some vehicle trouble. And so we have just kind of been on a dead run for the last week. So if at any point I say things that don't make sense or not coherent, somebody raise your hand and say, you need to start over. You're getting out of line. So I'm perfectly okay with that at this point. All right. Um, all right. Let me start um, by uh, saying that. We're going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah, we're going to be in chapter 1, starting in verse 1. You know, a few months ago, I heard a sermon on the radio uh, that piqued my interest in the book of Nehemiah. Um, some of you may know, I recently graduated from Moody Bible Institute with a, uh, actually just this past spring, with a degree in ministry leadership. Um, leadership is a topic that has always fascinated me. And studying it has become somewhat of a passion for me. So when I heard this sermon on Nehemiah, I was motivated to study about this man 
and his leadership for myself. So I have been pouring over the book of Nehemiah for the past couple of months, and uh, this is actually somewhat of an introductory uh, message uh, to the character of Nehemiah and in this book. Um, so in uh, Nehemiah, the Lord has given us an example of how he accomplishes his work. He does it his way. Let us turn our attention to God's word. Uh, this is the word of the Lord from Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your ways are so great. They are far beyond anything we could ever even conceive of. Lord, we are small and weak. And confess, Lord, that we greatly need you today. Thank you for the kindness you have shown to us. Father, please help me as I proclaim your word. Let the Holy Spirit take my feeble voice and use your word to work powerfully in the hearts of all who hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about Nehemiah. Uh, if, if we're going to learn about him, it helps us to understand a little bit of his background and the story 
the background of the story as we are seeing it. Um, we know very little about Nehemiah's backstory, who he was before uh, becoming the cupbearer. Uh, we know very little about him. We know that he had an important and prestigious job. He was the cupbearer for the Persian king Artaxerxes. Now, that might sound like a lame job to some of you. Uh, you know, it, it actually, in ancient times, was a really big deal. The, uh, he was actually one of the king's most trusted servants. He was always close to the king. So it was, uh, it was given to someone who had earned a great deal of trust from the king. He had a reputation for being trustworthy. It's not easy to gain the trust of a king. Other than the queen, no one had more access or better access to the king than the cupbearer. It was his job to taste everything that came before the king, uh, food and drink-wise, to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. Nehemiah um, actually was eating from the king's table. I heard someone say that, that this was a terrific job until it wasn't. Um, Alistair Begg actually noted that it was a great job for a risk taker who likes food. Uh, and I thought that was uh, well put. The, the cupbearer cup was a layer of security for the king. Um, he was uh, one of the most trusted men in the king's entire household. It speaks very highly of Nehemiah's character that he was chosen. He was able to rise up to this position as a foreigner, as a people from, uh, as, as a member of a, a, a conquered people. He had been taken out of his homeland uh, as a conquered people and had risen to this position as a foreigner. Uh, he had gained the trust of King Artaxerxes. So we know that Nehemiah is a man of character, uh, at least a character that had impressed the Persian royalty, but we also know that he lived in Susa. Now, some of you have probably heard of Susa before. Um, even, if, even if you don't remember where you've heard it from, Susa was the wintertime capital of the Persian Empire. Essentially, Susa was the Washington, D.C. of the greatest empire in the world in the 5th century B.C. It is where King Ahasuerus lived during the heroic events recorded in the book of Esther. And it's home to one of the most impressive structures that has ever been built. The palace fortress that was built in Susa, built by King Darius a few generations before Artaxerxes. Um, This palace was enormous. It actually covered 250 acres of land. Uh, It was giant. It's said that the columns were 80 foot tall. Um, the, uh, The foundations were in some places that they've discovered over 60 feet deep where they dug down for the foundations, crushed stone, and packed it in for the foundations 60 feet deep. The massive palace, uh, it was built to show off the wealth and the power of the Medo-Persian Empire. This is the palace where King Ahasuerus held the great banquet um, and entertained the nobles of his kingdom in Esther chapter 1. And it's also that uh, palace in which Queen, Queen Esther herself famously approached the king unsummoned. 
This palace in which Nehemiah served the king was the epicenter of world politics in those days. Okay, so at this point we know that Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king and that he lived in Susa. But what does that matter? Why do we care about any of that? I can think of uh, at least two reasons that this is important. Um, The detail uh, that we see here lends to the credibility of the historical account. The story of Nehemiah is a historical account about real people living in a real place at a real period of time. This is not a religious myth meant to teach us a moral lesson. These are real people. The events recorded in the book of Nehemiah are historically accurate and reliable. That Nehemiah records being in Susa at this period of time, uh, actually uh, during the reign of Artaxerxes, is important. It is historically accepted that Artaxerxes did live in Susa. And so uh, apologetics gets a check for historical accuracy here. Uh, Number two, we also know that uh, Nehemiah is a Jew. And he is a Jew who loves his countrymen, his fellow Jews, and he loves Jerusalem. The fact that he lives 765 miles away in Susa is a reminder that he is a Jew in exile. Remember, after continuing in wickedness and idolatry for generation after generation, and ignoring God's kindness in sending the prophets to warn them and call them back, the Lord sent Nebuchadnezzar to Jerusalem to destroy the city and to carry the Jews off into exile. Now this was not a final judgment of the Jews, but a means of discipline to correct their wicked ways. The story of Nehemiah takes place in a very dark time in the history of God's people, but it is a hinge point in their story. At the very beginning of the book of Nehemiah, we can see what is important to this godly man. Look down at verse 2. Nehemiah receives a visit from his brother, Hanani, and immediately asks the question burning on his mind. He says, And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. He wanted to know about his fellow Jews and about the condition of Jerusalem. Now, a few years prior to this, a group of Jews had been permitted to leave their captivity and go back to Jerusalem. They had been led by Zerubbabel and Joshua the priest and Ezra the scribe. Now, their story is recorded in the book of Ezra, just one book back from Nehemiah. Um, and historically, those two books are linked. Um, in, the, in the Hebrew scriptures, this was actually one book. So this is a continuation of their story. The earlier group had rebuilt the temple and uh, had reinstituted the worship system in Jerusalem. And they had actually begun working on the walls. That was uh, part of what they had, had gone to do. So... Um, At the very beginning of this story, Nehemiah is asking about that group of people. He's asking about the men and women who had escaped captivity and had gone uh, back to their beloved city. In verse 3, 
We can see, however, that the news he received was not good. Hanani explains that the work on these walls had actually been destroyed uh, and the people were in danger. Historically, this makes sense. It was around this time in the Persian Empire uh, that there were beginning to be rebellions cropping up uh, on the outskirts of the empire. Um, It could be that the work sanctioned by the Persian king, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, uh, had actually been destroyed by rebelling forces. Or it could be that the Persians destroyed it themselves in an effort to prevent having a fortified city uh, that could be used against them in a time of unrest. Either way, the work that had been started was destroyed and the people were vulnerable. Have you ever received news that made your knees wobble? I mean, the kind of news that... Uh, requires you to sit down before you fall down. I have experienced that type of gut punch. I'm sure many of you have as well. Uh, For us, uh, one instance of this kind of shock came in the middle of the night. Uh, We were awakened in the middle of the night by a banging on our door. That is never a good thing. Uh, When someone bangs on your door in the middle of the night, it's never to... Uh, return the garden hose that they had borrowed last week. Um, no, it, it is always bad news. And for us, it was actually April's dad coming to tell us that her sister had been killed in an auto accident. The news sucked the air out of the room. There was nothing to do but just grieve and try to catch our breath. Have you experienced that type of shocking news? That is the type of experience that Nehemiah has here when he receives this news. That is uh, the, the type of reaction that he has to this news. Remember, the identity of this people has been ripped away as they've left their land and, and been taken into exile. The, the people who went with Ezra and, and the uh, Zerubbabel and, and the first group that went back to Jerusalem, they carried with them the hopes of a nation. Every Jew in Persia was hoping for an end to exile, just as God had promised. Nehemiah was hoping to hear news that Jerusalem was thriving and the exile was coming to an end. But no, The news he got was terrible. The brothers there in Jerusalem are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Did you notice that Hanani refers to the people's condition as one of shame? They had gone in great hope to rebuild Jerusalem but it had not gone according to plan. They had seemingly failed in their mission and now are in trouble and shame. As a small aside, does that speak to anybody here today? Has the path of your life taken some unexpected turns? 
that have left you feeling defeated? Are you in trouble? Are you in shame? Often when we find ourselves in a place of shame, we can see no end to it. The people of Jerusalem, they would walk past these ruins of these walls every day. They would see the broken down walls, the destruction around them every day. They, they may have assumed that the wall would never be rebuilt and they would never feel safe. That there would be no end to the shame and rejection that they felt. Now, if that strikes a chord with you, hang tight. God is not finished with these shame-filled Jews. And God is not finished with you. Our first great insight into Nehemiah's character comes when we see his response to this bad news. If you look at verse 4, you can see uh, his response. He says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. How did Nehemiah respond? He cared enough to weep. He was heartbroken. It says he wept and mourned for days. One commentator that I read uh, this week noted that what makes people laugh or weep is often an indication of character. People who laugh at others' mistakes or misfortunes or who weep over trivial personal disappointments are lacking either in culture or character and possibly both. Sometimes weeping is a sign of weakness. But with Nehemiah, it was a sign of strength, as it was with Jeremiah and Paul and the Lord Jesus. Nehemiah is overcome with grief. But grief for what? He is grieved for the people of God who have been shamed and exposed. He is grieved for the state of God's city, Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. He is actually brokenhearted because the glory of God has been tarnished among the nations. God's name is being profaned among the nations because of the sin of the Jews. When is the last time that you were grieved? For the sake of God's glory. Our Lord's name is drugged through the mud regularly by false teachers and false churches. In many places, the people of God are vulnerable and exposed to dangerous ideas and doctrinal lies. Now, Sovereign Grace Bible Church, you should be thankful. God has given you a shepherd who loves you and is concerned with the defense of this flock. Do not take that for granted. It is a rare and wonderful gift in our time. Clearly, we have all experienced grief in this world over our own losses, but we are not often grieved 
by the profaning of God's holy name. But here's another lesson for us. Nehemiah does not waste his grief. He does not simply wallow in the mire of heartbreak. He does not turn to alcohol or other vices. Nehemiah realizes that those would be a waste of time. They accomplish nothing but making things worse. No, he takes his grief to the only one who can do anything about it. He takes it to the Lord God Almighty. Much like the disciples in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, when the storm suddenly arose, they were afraid. They were convinced they were going to die. They were full of doubts. But they knew what to do with those doubts. They took them to the Lord Jesus. They woke him up with their pleading for help. Now, we all experience doubt and grief. That is a normal part of life in this world. But what do you do with them? Take them to Christ. He can handle your doubts and your fears. He can handle your griefs. He is the faithful friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. Everything to God in prayer. Nehemiah takes his grief to the Lord. Now earlier I expressed that the book of Nehemiah shows us how God does his work, that he does it his way. The first way we see God moving in this story is in the prayer of Nehemiah. God moved Nehemiah to grief over the news of Hanani, that Hanani brought. And then God moved Nehemiah to pray for the relief of the people and for the upcoming work. Now, it has been noted that most historical awakenings and revivals have begun with a people praying. If you look back historically at the great revivals in our history, <clears throat> almost every one of them can be traced back to a group of people who faithfully prayed for God to move. God moves his people to pray. In this story, God moves Nehemiah to pray. <clears throat> now, some of you may have heard of this, and many people have found it helpful uh, to use an acronym for praying. Uh, ACTS, ACTS. Stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Certainly not a law to pray that way, but it is helpful for some. Nehemiah's prayer is similar to this with a slight variation. One thing to note regarding his prayer is that Nehemiah knows a lot about the Lord. He has studied God enough to understand who God is and what he is like. What he expects of us as well as what he has promised to us. There is a lot of Bible in Nehemiah's prayer. From beginning to end, his prayer expresses a rich understanding of God and his covenant. Let's begin looking at his prayer with the adoration part of the prayer. 
found in verses 5 and 6. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Nehemiah ascribes greatness to the Lord at the beginning of his prayer. God is great. Nehemiah understands that there are great challenges and a great work ahead for his people. Warren Wiersbe has said, if you are experiencing great affliction and are about to undertake a great work, then you need the great power, great goodness, and great mercy of a great God. How big is your God? Is the God that you worship big enough to handle the challenges of your life? Is the God that you worship great enough to make all these things work for your good? If not, may I suggest that you may not be worshiping the God of the Bible. This God is very great. There is nothing in your life too big or too small for him. Nehemiah also praises the Lord for his faithfulness. He is the God who keeps covenant with his people. There are times when I have trouble keeping my brain uh, tuned in towards prayer. Life can be very busy, and I sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, struggle with switching from one thing to the next. And um, I have found that beginning a prayer the way that Nehemiah does with adoration helps to focus my time, helps to focus my attention. Uh, It takes my mind off the things of the world. Uh, Once again, if I can reference uh, another helpful song, when I turn my eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, that's when the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his goodness and grace. I see clearly how beautiful he is and how faithful he has been to me. It's a good thing for me that he is faithful and that his faithfulness has not depended on me. Nehemiah is recognizing the truth that Paul expounds on some 500 years later in the book of Romans. Chapter 8, verse 28, he says, And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How do we know that, Paul? Well, in part, we can know it because of the faithfulness displayed in the Old Testament passages like the one that we're looking at today. God is faithful. God is also loving towards his people. Do you see that in this text? See the steadfast love in verse 5? For those of you who were here the last time that I spoke to you all, this is a form of the same Hebrew word that we looked at, uh, hesed. And it it may be helpful to remind you of the definition we used for, for that word. Hesed is a word used throughout the Old Testament 
to refer to the positive aspects of God's nature, referring specifically to his covenant attitude towards his people. There is no one English word that can translate all that is encompassed in Hesed. Here it is a reference to the long-suffering, steadfast love that God has for his people, even though they so often turn away. Nehemiah recognizes that God's love is steadfast. It is not fickle like human love. Even in the most stable and loving marriage in the world, there are times when love wears thin. In those stable and loving marriages, the couple may regain their love quickly. But there are times when human nature gets in the way. There are seasons where there are fights and arguments because according to James, we don't get what we want, so we devour one another. Our love for each other may be strong, but it is not perfectly steadfast. If you doubt me, take a little mental test with me. Who do you love most in this world? For me, it is my wife. By the way, if you're married, it should be your spouse. Can you honestly say that you are always patient? Always kind? Unenvious? Humble? You always forgive without keeping score? Hopeful? Protective? Always persevering. The key word is always. If you are honest, you would like me have to answer that with an emphatic no. But God is not like us. His love never thins. He is all of those things towards every believer all of the time. We tend to view 1 Corinthians 13 as a checklist for us to check off. Maybe what we should do is view it as a realization of Christ's perfect, steadfast love for his children. Finally, Nehemiah adores God by recognizing him as authoritative. He comes before the king of kings asking to be heard and seen. He is not presumptive with God. It is good for us to learn not to presume upon the great God of heaven. We need to realize who is God and who is not. That leads directly into the next part of Nehemiah's prayer. The next section of the prayer is confession. At the end of verse 6, And through verse 7, Nehemiah confesses the sins of the people and of himself. He does not hide behind any pretense of self-righteousness. He makes no claim that God should answer his prayer because of anything that he has done to deserve it. He readily confesses that he and his people are in need of mercy. 
Again, we see how well Nehemiah knows his Bible. He knows God's law is the plumb line and knows that he and his brethren have missed the mark. He boldly confesses, trusting in God's promise to forgive. Now, that covers the adoration and confession parts of the prayer. This is where the thanksgiving would come in the ACTS acronym. But it looks a little different for Nehemiah in his prayer. In verses 8 and 9, Nehemiah makes a general request that God would remember his word. Look at verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So Nehemiah is reminding God of what the Lord said to Moses. Is God forgetful that he needs to be reminded of what he has said? Obviously not. So why does Nehemiah take time and space in this story to do that very thing, to remind God? The purpose of this reminding in Nehemiah's prayer is for Nehemiah's sake as well as for our sake. Certainly much more than it is for God's sake. This is true uh, for at least three reasons. First of all, voicing God's word in our prayers helps to align us with God's will. God has expressed himself in his written word. How better to ensure we are in line with God's will than to make sure that we're in line with his word. Number two, voicing God's word in our prayers gives us confidence in God. When we recognize that, we are, that what we are praying is in line with God's word and therefore his will, we gain confidence that God will answer us accordingly. It helps us see that it is God who will prevail in doing the great things that are not possible for us. And number three, voicing God's word in our prayers encourages us to keep going. If we grow in confidence that God will answer us because we are praying according to his will, then we gain encouragement to press on through whatever challenges we may face. We continue to pray because we know He is listening. And we continue to act because we know that He will not fail. It is good for us to incorporate Scripture in our prayers because it grounds our thinking in truth. The final section of Nehemiah's prayer is the supplication. This is the prayer request section of his prayer. This can be broken down into three requests. First, Nehemiah asks for success. He is confident in what he is praying because he has the assurance of God's word. He is assured by God's word that this is in line with God's will. He knows from the Bible 
which is the sole authority for our life and practice, our faith and practice, that God will rescue his people. The second request that Nehemiah makes is for God to grant favor with this man. He recognizes that even the great king, Artaxerxes, the most powerful man on the planet at that time, is a mere man. He recognizes that even this great king is operating under the sovereign rulership of God. As such, Nehemiah recognizes the truth of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Nehemiah has respect for the authority that God has placed over him and the Jews. He is not planning to sneak out of Susa and build the wall around Jerusalem. Now this is very applicable to us today, but that would require getting into another sermon. So I'm going to skate right past that one. Uh, He does go over the king's head and he makes a request to the king's superior. The final request is seen in one simple word. Today. Nehemiah is asking the great God of heaven, the one who is sovereign over the greatest king in the world, to give him favor with King Artaxerxes today. Nehemiah is prepared to take action He does not pray and then shrug off the responsibilities of working hard towards the goal. He is willing to take any opportunity that the Lord will provide. And we see that opportunity represented in verse 11. The chapter ends with the revelation of Nehemiah's position in the royal court. He was the cupbearer to the king. God had ordained that Nehemiah would be in the position to accomplish God's purposes. Likewise, God will give opportunities for you to accomplish his purposes here in Warland. For Nehemiah, God answered his prayer by moving the king to commission the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem. What work is God about to do in Wyoming? What work is God about to do in Warland? Are you praying for it? Don't be discouraged if those prayers have not been answered yet. Prayer is sometimes like the big steel wheels of the old locomotive trains. You've seen that, right? I'm, I'm not the only one. Like The wheels start turning... And they're going just as fast as they can go. But because of the weight of the engine and the cars behind it, there's a lot going on there besides those wheels turning. And eventually, they get traction and they take off. Sort of like that. If, if the engineer stopped those wheels because the train wasn't up to speed yet, you'd call him absurd. You'd say that's ridiculous. It takes time. In this case, it takes God's time. God will build His church His way. Do not grow weary in prayer. 
Nehemiah began praying in the month of Kislev, which is fall time. It was probably around November uh, for us. It was four or five months later before he had the opportunity that God gave him to ask the king's permission to go to Jerusalem. Do not give up on praying if God does not respond quickly. Or what is quickly in our minds. Or as quickly as you think that he should. What promise is God going to fulfill in our time? Are you praying for your neighbors to be born again? Are you praying that God would increase his church here in Warland? Are you praying for revival in Wyoming, in the Mountain West? Are you praying for a great awakening across the United States of America? We know these prayers are in line with his will. We know that the hearts of men are in the hands of the Lord. He will move those who are his. And we know that we are called to action. Are you willing to ask for that harvest today? I want to end with a word of caution. You must be careful not to think that our prayers move God to change. God is unchanging. God allows us to pray to Him to accomplish His own purposes. Do not be crushed by the weight of this call to prayer. The weight is not yours to carry. It is God who moves us to pray. It is not uncommon for Christians to waver in their prayer life. In fact, I'd say it's very common. If you struggle to pray, ask Him to help. By His will and grace, we are more than conquerors. And His grace is sufficient even for you. So this raises another question. Does God hear the prayer of every person? Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2 helps us answer that question. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So there are some prayers that are not heard by God. Sin separates people from God. People don't like to hear that. I'm just telling you what the book says. Do you remember Hanani from earlier in the story? The brother of Nehemiah who brought the bad news? Do you know what his name means? Hanani in Hebrew means gracious. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It is his grace that allows us to hear the bad news. 
without knowing the bad news, the good news of Jesus doesn't mean very much. So if he doesn't hear everyone's prayers, whose prayers does God hear? Those who have had their guilt expunged. No one should expect the Father expecting to be heard if they've rejected His Christ. Have you come to the place of Nehemiah to recognize your own sin? Have you recognized your need for Christ, the only hope for sinners? He lived a perfect, sinless life on this earth to preserve a perfect right standing with God. He died as a sacrifice, paying the penalty that you deserve for all who trust in Him and His work. The perfect righteousness that He earned is credited to you. And your sin is placed on Him, on Christ. What marvelously good news. Turn from your sin and embrace Christ. Let's pray. O Lord, God of heaven, You are great and mighty, compassionate, faithful, and loving to those who love You and are called according to Your purposes. Lord, please hear the prayer of this, Your servant. We have sinned against You. We have neglected to seek first Your kingdom and Your righteousness. Please forgive us. Father, I pray that you would raise up a people to pray for revival. Send an awakening in our time that will bring glory to the name of Christ. Lord, change the heart of your people here who have not yet come to Christ. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. In the name of the Almighty King Jesus, amen.